Today I want to continue in the book of Acts um, in our series. I'm not going to preach directly from Acts today. I want to talk to you today about how you see you. Hmm. How do you see you? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you automatically see your flaws, your lack, what you didn't get? Do you automatically see a pimple, (laughs) a bump? A beauty mark? Come on, somebody. What do you see when you look in the mirror? How do you describe the person that you see in the mirror? Today, I want to talk to you about identity. And the title of today's message is, Who is that in the mirror? Because you see, how we see ourselves says a lot about how we see God. How we see God says a lot about how we see ourselves. So a lot of times, if you listen to people or you watch their life, you'll see how they see themselves. You'll see what they sell themselves short to. You'll see the areas in their life that they give away cheaply to unworthy causes. You'll see where they're confident. You'll see where they're strong. But you'll see a lot when you watch people. I've had a few names in my life, not legal names, but nicknames. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to share a few of them with you. What I didn't know about my nicknames was that my nicknames came with a definition because you see, when people would call me a name, it was because they saw something in me that caused them to say, that's what that is. There was a definition that wasn't even described, but it was there that went with the name. So my first nickname was Bambo. B-A-M-B-O. It was short or long for Bam Bam. I was a big, fat, brulee kid. I was chunky, cute as could be, still cute as could be. Come on, somebody. Still chunky. (laughs) But Bam Bam had a definition. It meant rough, rugged, tough, strong. And people would call me that to get me to do things. I got a little bit older, my name shifted to Big Bubba. (laughs) Big Bubba had a definition. It meant strong as an ox. Don't really need to think much. You can force anything to happen when you want it to happen. And that would later on in life come to bite me in the butt in a struggle because of my nickname, Big Bubba. I was known as the guy who would move your furniture. That's probably why I had two back surgeries. I get to college and I get a nickname, Woody, by a friend who was trying, I didn't realize at the time, was trying to manipulate me. And he named me a character from the the show Cheers. You remember Woody from Cheers? Woody was a little airish. He was a little naive. He was, excuse this, but he was a little blonde. He was a little dumb. I didn't realize at the time, but my friend called me Woody because that's how he saw me. And that nickname defined my life, and, the, and, and it, it just brought a definition to me. And the whole time, he's trying to manipulate me to take advantage of my stuff. He wanted my truck. He wanted the money that my mama was giving me. And he was trying to just advance himself at my expense. And so he gave me the name Woody. And we all thought it was funny until later on I realized what Woody meant. I was born again at 12 years old at the ABC camp in Richard, and when I went back to my home church in Franklin, 
I was known as a sinner. Because I got born again and I went back to my church thinking that everybody would rejoice and celebrate and be excited. And all everybody talked about was just not sinning again. And whatever you do, don't sin. I'll never forget one lady comes up to me. She goes, now you know you can't look at those magazines no more. And I was sitting there going, how does she know? That's all I was ever, just don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. And when you sin, you're a sinner and, you're, and that's just who you are. And so I lived a good portion of my life trying to not sin. How'd that go for you? Back to college, I applied for a job at Outback Steakhouse. Come on, somebody. And, and they were taking applications for waiters and busboys. And I went and I applied and uh, they called me in for an interview and I went in for the interview and, and the guy, the interviewing me, he said, man, he said, I'd really love for you to be a waiter. He said, I think you'd make a great waiter. Your application looks great. I was like, oh, that's cool. I don't want to be a waiter. He's like, well, well why not? I said, I don't know. Well, what, what do you, I want to be a busboy. Well, why would you want to be a busboy? I just want to be a busboy. I didn't think I was smart enough to be a waiter. I didn't think I was smart enough to take a menu and you tell me you wanted a steak and write it on a piece of paper and bring it to a cook and him cook it and give it back to me and bring it back to your table. I didn't think I was smart enough to be a waiter. I settled for a busboy. Now, I was the baddest busboy around but I wasn't a waiter. And this guy tried and tried to convince me to be a waiter. I was scared to death because I believed the lie that I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't talented enough. So I had a nickname, Bus Boy. And here's a funny story with Pastor Bubba. I went hunting with Pastor Bubba and Pastor Jacob for years and eventually they started calling me Big Limit. And you kill geese, you got a limit to what you can kill and how many you can kill. And I thought, you know, they were bragging on me because I was a good shot and I realized I'm not a good shot. Uh, <laughs> stop shaking your head, son. <laughs> I'm not a gun enthusiast. I have a bunch of guns that I've never bought. I don't fall in love with guns. I don't research guns. It's not my thing. I've never really liked it, but I got some and I'm glad I do, but I'm not a good shot. And I realized hunting with them that I'm not a good shot. Pastor Bubba was an excellent shot. And so they would call me Big Limit. And it was a job to go hunt with them because you'd have to get there an hour early. And according to the wind, you'd have to reset the decoys. And then once you reset the decoys, then you're out of wind. You go back to the blind and you sit there and these geese fly and then you're expected to kill them. And I couldn't hit one. And so the first season I went through, they're calling me Big Limit. What's up, Big Limit? What's up, Big Limit? You hunting with us today? And man, they invited me all the time. They never made me pay for the lease. I was like, God, this is great, man. I like got favor. I'm like, I'm Big Limit. I'm going hunting. Until I realized Big Limit meant you can't hit nothing. So what you can't hit, I can hit because you're hunting. And so we're going to call you Big Limit because I get a bigger limit when you come. I quit hunting after that. That's a true story. Big limit. I still want to talk to Pastor Jacob about that. <laughs> Many of us in this room have been named. And we found some type of identity from some source that gave it to us. 
And I want to tell you today, you might want to write this down, but you will either live up to or down to whatever you believe is true about yourself. You will, you will either live up to or down to whatever you believe is true about yourself. Side note, not everything that people told you is true. Not everything that they've said about you is true. So today we're experiencing an identity crisis. It's pretty bad. It's global. It's not just in the church. It's in the world. But this isn't a new issue. From Genesis to Revelations, we see God's people struggling to live from a healthy identity. And here's the thing. When you have healthy identity, you're a healthy person. When your identity is unhealthy, you live unhealthy. That means you start doing things to try to live up to something or you do things to try to live down to something or you don't do, or whatever it is for you, but there's things that happen that'll either cause you to live up to what somebody said or live down to what they said because of an unhealthy identity. And so today, I know the church, capital C church across the globe is having a hard time just being God's people. How many of you would be real honest this morning and say, you know what? There's a lot of times I believe I'm supposed to be doing something else. I'm, I believe that I'm supposed to do something else for God to love me more. I need to be this or I need to be that for God to love me. And you're, and you're trying to do something to receive something and he's already given it to you. If you'll just sit and be, then you'll discover how incredible he is. We're struggling to just be his children So time and time again, we see the children of God go astray, get in trouble, and then God would come back around and deliver them again and show them how much he loves them. And we see it all throughout scripture. And so today I want to give you three things. I want to remind you who God is. I want to get you a revelation of who you are. And I want to show you the results of a healthy identity. I by no means can accomplish everything that needs to be said about identity today. I want to give you just a 40,000-foot view of identity, and I want to use the story of Gideon. So I'm not preaching directly from Acts, but Peter and John were able to do what they were able to do because this is where this came from. When, when, I'm, when I'm reading and studying Peter and John, I'm going, man, these guys are shaking the planet. How do men shake the planet they got to know who they are, and they got to know who's God, who their God is. How can you stand on trial and say, I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you. I'm listening to God so you can do whatever you want. How does a man get to that place? He must know who his God is, and he must know who he is. So I want to use the story of Gideon today. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6. In verse 11, this is the, the verses I'm going to key in on the most. It says this, verse 11 and 12. It says, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of uh, Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. 
So up to this point, the children of Israel have been in captivity by the Midianites for seven years. But I want you to understand something. They're in captivity in a place called Canaan. Canaan is the promised land. Remember the promised land, how it was described earlier? It was the land flowing with milk and honey. Remember how the 12 spies went and they came back and they reported that they, this land, I mean, like, like, bro, there's, there's fruit so big. They're in that land, but they're in captivity, which tells me that you can be where God wants you to be and not still be who God wants you to be. You can be in the right place, but have the wrong identity. Up to this point, God had been delivering his people many times. When we get to Judges chapter 6, God has done delivered these people many times. Think about them coming out of Egypt when God rescues them from Egypt. He does a supernatural thing. They see the sea parted, right? They walk across the sea bottom. And then they, they turn around and they see God did destroy their enemy with the same sea they just walked through. Only to later get into the desert and go, I wish we could just go back. So number one, I want to show you who he is. There's not enough time to give you everything, but I just feel like this is what the Lord wanted me to tell you today. I want to remind you who he is. Listen to what the psalmist says in, one, in Psalms 102, verse 27. He says, but you, speaking of the Lord, he says, but you are always the same. You will live forever. You are always the same and you will live forever. So watch this. When you read about God in Genesis, he's the same God in Revelation. When you read about who he is in Genesis, he's the same God today, right now, in this moment. He is unchanging. He lives forever. He doesn't get moved by anything other than faith. Come on, somebody. He's the God who's unchanging. Your circumstances don't change him. Your situation doesn't change him. You can get mad at him and it does not change him. He's unchanging. Aren't you glad that you serve a God who's stable? Aren't you glad he ain't as emotional as you are? Aren't you glad he don't freak out like you do? My God, what kind of place would we be in if God was as <laughs> unstable as I am? He remains the same. He's unchanged by anything. He threw Satan out of, the God, out of heaven and it didn't change God. It changed Satan. No circumstance, no sin, no decision, no tragic event, no accident, no loss, no king, or no kingdom can change who God is. We got to nail that down in the deepest part of our soul today, that God is unchangeable. You will change, but he won't. I find this very fascinating, worth studying, that God who is unchangeable is the author of change. Think about that. The one who will not ever change is the one who does the changing in everybody else's life. Right? How many of you know God has, a, he knows how to show up. Like God knows how to reveal himself to man. He's been doing it for a long time. Right? Let me give you a couple of examples. God took Abram, 
who was a childless foreigner and turned him into an Abraham who was the father of nations and the owner of the promised land. Don't tell me God can't change you because he's unchangeable. Only an unchangeable God can change us. He'll take an Abraham, an Abram and make him an Abraham. He'll take you from barren to, to the father of nations. What about Sarah's servant, Hagar? Hagar was abused, honestly. She was mistreated, honestly. She was just serving her master, and her master said, let's, let's let Abraham sleep with Hagar and make us a child. They're trying to make their own children. And so what happens is she has Ishmael. And then that doesn't go right because anytime we try to create our own things, it don't go right and it don't bring the fulfillment we think it's gonna bring. So then we discard it, we kick it to the side and it becomes disposable. Hagar became disposable. So who is God to Hagar? God is the God who found Hagar in the wilderness preparing to die. The Bible says she took her son and set him there and loved on him and then went around the corner and was ready to die. And God came and met her in the wilderness. And he said, this is not your destiny. This is not the end of your story. He reassured her. He reassigned her. And he sent her back to her servants, her masters. And she said, go and you're going to be blessed and your son will be blessed. God's the God who can find you when you're rejected, mistreated, not good enough. What about Moses? God appears to Moses in a bush. I told the first service, many men for many years have been trying to find God in a bush, beer. And they can't find him. But boy, he was in the burning bush. Moses finds God in a bush. Watch this. Moses is running from his own actions. Why was Moses in the wilderness in the first place? He was raised in royalty, educated at the top levels. He was literally royalty. What does royalty have to do with the wilderness? His actions got him there. Now you need to see this about God because God met Moses even after his actions got him in the wilderness. Ah, oh, that's hope for somebody because you made some mistakes, you made some bad decisions. God's still gonna meet you in your wilderness and he's still gonna reassign you. Just look for a burning bush. <laughs> God reassigns him, he restores him, and reassigns him, and look at what God tells him. He tells him, you're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to rescue my people. <laughs> he just said, what you say, Willis? I got a stuttering problem. He gave God all his excuses. Well, what do I tell him? Who do I tell him sent me? God said, you tell him I am sent you. What does that mean? Well, I am means that I am because I am. I don't need nobody else to be I am. Like God is self-sufficient. Y'all need to recognize he's self-sufficient. He created himself. He didn't need any outside sources and he never will need an outside source. God exists on his own. He said, you tell him that's who sent you. And if that ain't good enough, then you tell him this, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob said to come. What does that say? That even though I'm self-existent, I've created my own self, even though I don't need anything else, I still want to be with my people. I'm still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
What about the Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They got in trouble for doing the right thing. Thrown in a fiery furnace because they wouldn't listen to man. They would only listen to God. What's so cool about that story? Here's the cool thing about that story is God didn't shut the fire down. God didn't change the king's heart. Not yet. God didn't pluck them out of the fire. How many of you have been praying for God to pluck you out of something? Come on, he ain't plucked you out yet. Here's a tip. Stop asking him to pluck you out and open your eyes because he's standing right next to you. Because if he ain't took you out, he's standing with you. So what did he show the Hebrew boys? I'm the God who can stand in the fire with you and I'll bring you through the fire and you're going to come out smelling like roses. I'm the God who's going to show the world around you that I can walk through anything as long as God is with me. But how many times do we get, we get almost like hell bent that God has to do it this way and because we're so bent that he has to do it this way, we don't see that he's right there the whole time. And we're missing his presence and we're missing him being with us in the moment because we think he needs to do it this way. But let me tell you something. It's something when the people around you see God in your situation. They don't just see you get out of your situation. They see God in your situation. That's what happened to the king. He goes, hold up. I thought we threw three in. Why is there four? What did he do? That must be their God. He flipped his script. He went from worshiping me. We all need to worship him because he's the God that stands in the fire and doesn't get burned. Mm. Ball people need to see God in your situation. So maybe you need to stop complaining about your situation and just see where God is in your situation and just enjoy that part of the journey. Well, God, how are we going to get through this today? So I want you to keep in mind that anytime God wants to, he can show up himself. You heard? When God's had enough, he'll show up himself. Let me teach you something real quick. In, in verse 11, it says, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree, right? The, that, that phrase or that description, the angel of the Lord, is actually, it actually means Malach Yahweh, which means it's, it's God's tangible presence in some type of form. Jesus appeared in the Old Testament, y'all. I don't know if you've been reading your Bible or not, but Jesus appeared in the Old Testament several times. God can appear as himself in the form of anything that he wants to. And Malach Yahweh says that God, when God, it says that God appeared, the angel of the Lord came and sat. That was the very presence of God that set in Gideon's situation. Watch verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree. <laughs> you ever feel like God's not there? Come on, be honest with me. You ever feel that way? Anybody ever feel that way? Come on, I'm going to get you to respond. You ever feel like God's not there? Were you right? Or were you wrong? The Bible says that the angel of the Lord, God's very presence, came and sat under the tree that day. What was he doing? He was watching. Think about it. He's sitting under the shadow of the big tree, 
and he's watching Gideon. This is the God that we serve, y'all. His eyes are on you. They're always on you. He's watching. What was he watching? He was watching Gideon frantically busy with his work of survival. And God's just sitting there watching. Gideon's killing himself trying to survive. Working his tail off. Hiding. Trying to do it without being seen. And he's just working his tail off trying to survive because he's afraid of the Midianites. And God sees him. Gideon doesn't know that God's there when God gets there. Verse 11 says, God came and sat. He didn't say nothing about Gideon. Verse 12 says that Gideon was busy threshing wheat. He never noticed the presence of God. Does that make sense? He's just doing his thing, trying to survive. Killing himself. You got to understand something. God is omnipresent. That means that he's just as much here as he is over there. Right? He's omnipresent. He's always there. He's omnipresent. Sometimes he's Malach Yahweh. He shows up himself. And boy, does he know how to show up in our life. So here's a freebie. Just because you can't see him, just because you can't feel him, just because you don't sense him doesn't mean that he's not there. He's just sitting in the shade of the tree watching what's going on, making his observations. And he's sitting there not in judgment. He's sitting there in love, just looking at you struggling, trying to make a living for yourself, giving everything you got. God's just sitting in the shadows, in the shade, watching. So that's just a little bit about who God is. I just want to remind you a little bit. Let's see if we can get a revelation about who I am. Who I am. Who are you? Who's that in the mirror? Let's back the story up a little bit to verse 1 to get a greater understanding. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, verse 1. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves. Watch this. In the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Wherever, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian and Amalek and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying the crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived in droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. But boy, they didn't have to wait till they lost everything. They're in the promised land. The place that God had moved men and mountains to get his people to. 
They're in the promised land, but they're in captivity in the promised land. Every time they plant a seed and it starts to reap a harvest, the enemy comes and takes it away. Does that sound like your finances? Come on, does that sound like your joy? Does that sound like your your goodness? Does it sound like your peace? That every time you sow a seed and you start to reap a harvest of peace, here comes an enemy to take it. And it says they stayed until the land was bare. They're hiding in mountains and caves and strongholds. How long are we going to keep hiding? Why are you hiding? I believe they were more afraid of their enemies than they were their own God. took everything they had. They reduced them to starvation, the Bible says. That means to be impoverished, which means this, to be reduced to poverty, it also means to be exhausted. You tired? You tired of trying to make your own way? You tired of trying to live up to something that you ain't supposed to be living up to? You tired of living down to something you ain't supposed to be living down to? So were they. Exhausted. Poor. Nothing left. Hiding in caves. God's people, the same people he, he moved out of Egypt. Then it says, then they cried out to the Lord. Why do we have to get so low before we get back up? You know, you don't have to hit bottom just because everybody says, oh, well, you know, they they need to hit the bottom before they come. You don't have to hit the bottom. You can get up before you get down. Amen. You can get right back up. You can start to fall and get right back up. They didn't have to wait seven years. They could have repented before they were starving. You don't have to wait till you're broke. You don't have to wait till you're exhausted. God's the God that'll meet you where you are. I wonder how many of us today have impoverished areas of our lives because we refuse to live like he sees us. We refuse to accept how he sees us. We refuse to see him for who he really is. Man, I've come to this realization. I can't do one single thing more to make God love me more than he loves me now. If I die today, God loved me with everything that he had. If I turned my back and walked away from him today, he loved me with everything that he had. I needed that revelation in my life because I spent too many years trying to do the next thing to make God love me more. Until finally, he's like, you go wear yourself out. You tired yet, bruh? No, I got a little bit more left in me. I need to do this. I need to clean this up, and I need to, I need to wash that, and I need to go over in and make sure this is straight, and I need, to, I need to act this way, and I need to get all this right before, so that way you'll love me again, and you'll love me more. And he's going, you ain't getting no more than this. It's all you're getting. You can't handle any more than what I've already given you. Won't you just accept what I've already given you?
So the second half of verse 11 says this, Gideon was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Remember, God's sitting under the shadows of the tree watching Gideon. And what's Gideon doing? This, this is a little bit comical. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Does that not sound funny to you? What do you make in a wine press? May you make wine. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. Let me tell you why. Threshing wheat is an open air event. It was usually done in a high place on a hill on, a, on a, some kind of a, a strong foundation with nothing blocking the wind, and you threshed the best when the wind was blowing. Because what they would do is they would pick the wheat, and they would bring it, and they would dump it on these big rocks, and then it would sit there and just beat the mess out of it. And they would beat it, that's threshing, they would beat it, and as they would beat it, the, the chaff or the shell would come off. When the shell would come off, it needed to be open air so the wind could blow it away. And then the wind would blow it away, and it would separate the chaff from the grain right? And so that it was an open air event to thresh wheat. You needed to be in an open air event. You needed to be exposed. You needed to be out in the open, right? But Gideon's threshing wheat in a wine press. Well, a wine press is down in the valley. You don't want any wind around the wine press because then it blows contaminants into your wine. And it's done in a deep depression of a rock. And then you would, you would dump the grapes in and you would get there barefooted after you washed your feet. And you would smash the, the grapes and you would turn them into wine. And you didn't want wind. You didn't want exposure. You didn't want, when you're threshing, everybody knows you're threshing that's downhill or downwind because they can smell it. Right? And they can see the chaff flying in the air. Well, because Gideon was so afraid of his enemy, he's threshing in a press. The Lord told me that some of you are doing the right thing in the wrong place for the wrong reason. You're giving your best. You're giving it all you got. And you're going, man, won't somebody just see I'm giving everything I got? Yeah, good, you're giving everything you got, but you're giving it in the wrong place. And you're giving it for the wrong reason. You don't know who you are. So you're giving everything to prove to everybody else that said something about you that you're not that or that you are that. He was more afraid of his enemy than he was his Lord. You want to know what I don't want to hear when I get to heaven? Now, I'm not just, this, I'm not just some guy who believes that everybody that gets to heaven is going to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Because there's going to be a couple of, couple of old boys that got in there at the last second, and they ain't had a chance to do nothing good. And he's going to say, well, you made it. <laughs> this is what I don't want to hear. Or I don't want to find out when I get to heaven. I don't want to find out that somebody else had to be used by God to do what my assignment was. I got a little too much Jesus pride inside of me to say, you know what, I'm going to let somebody else do my assignment. I'm going to back out of this one. I'm going to take me a little break. I need me a little emotional break. I'm going to sit over here on the side and just do my thing because I'm not all that. I'm not a waiter. I'm a bus boy. The whole time somebody else is doing your assignment and you're going, oh, I don't want to hear that. I wonder how many of us are doing the right thing in the wrong place for the wrong reasons today. 
You see, I see many Christians today giving their absolute best to the world or to gain riches of the world and then attempting to give God what is left over. Why would we do that? What would cause me to give the very thing that God delivered me from the best that I have? What would cause me to get things out of line? God saved me. The world didn't save me. The world was trying to kill me. God saved me. Why am I giving my best energy, effort, talent, skills, abilities, and resources to the world? Might have something to do with how you see yourself. And for me, that's what it was because I've done that. I'm sure many of you have also. For me, it was because I saw myself as my own provider and not God. I worked my tail off. There's one thing, when I die, I know what I'm going to hear from people. That brother could work. I wish I could, I was taught properly how to work and how good, healthy work ethic looks like. I was was abused when it came to work. I I was taught you had to prove yourself in everything. And I was always trying to live up to something. So I became a hard worker with a bad identity. And that, that followed me into my relationship with God. And, and at times I saw myself as my own provider because I knew men, authoritative men in my life had let me down. They've manipulated me. They've taken advantage of me. So I couldn't trust them. And, and God let that happen. So I couldn't trust him completely. I trusted him a little bit, but I couldn't trust him completely. So I had to do it myself. I had to make my own provision. I had to be my own provider. I had to, I had to have, create my own security. And I found security in my own abilities and not God's hand. What I really had was a trust issue with God. I had a bad image of God. So I safeguarded myself, I thought. Took control of my life and made my own way. Nobody's going to take advantage of me again. Nobody's going to hurt me again. I'm in control, and as long as I'm in control, can't nobody hurt me. I don't need nobody else. I'll provide for myself. And you want to know what's crazy? Is that's, that's what I honestly thought I needed to be. I honestly believe that. I believe this so much that it wrecked my life. All I really needed to be was God's boy, his son. I wish I could have just been God's son for all those years. I was trying to be something else. Watch verse 12. So verse 11, we see that God came, sat, and watched Gideon. Verse 12, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, we don't know how long God was sitting there. It doesn't tell us. I'm sure it takes a little while to thresh weed in a wine press, a lot longer than it would in a threshing floor. Come on, somebody. (laughs) But God's watching him, and then God appears to him. So verse 11, he's watching. Verse 12, he appears. And I want you to keep in mind that he's Malak Yahweh. He's the one that can show up himself. And I want you to hear how God speaks to Gideon. This is his introduction to Gideon. He says to Gideon, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Some translations say valiant warrior. 
Now, come on, let's just get real for a, for a minute. He's threshing wheat in a wine press so he don't get busted making himself a snack pack, right? He's scared to death that the enemy's going to find out that he's making a snack pack in the wine press, so he's hiding in the wine press. And God's watching him the whole time. And he addresses him as mighty hero. Well, was he a hero yet? Nope. Had he done anything heroic? Nope. But you see, God doesn't always see you where you are. He sees you where you're going. He sees you by what he can do in you, not by what others have done to you. He doesn't name you. He doesn't agree with the name that somebody else gave you. He'll never call you by somebody else's name. He'll call you only by his name for you. Mighty hero. But I ain't done nothing. I know I've been watching. <laughs> but that don't change how I see you. I bet God wanted to say, how can, Gideon was like, how can you call me mighty? Because I created you. I knitted you together in your mama's womb. I knew your name before she said it. Mighty hero. Then he says, the Lord is with you. You see, some of us have an issue believing that because we, we give ourselves too much credit in that. It's not because of me. It's because of him. That's the understanding I need to adopt. It's not because of me. You see, I know my limitations. I know where my quit is. I know where the kill switch is. I know when I overheat and, and it can't be because of me. So if I'm thinking that I'm a hero only because of me, I'll never be a hero. But it's not because of me. It's because of him in me. Come on, it's because of him. Then he says, the Lord is with you. How many of you could use a good fresh one from the word, a fresh word from the Lord today? Come on, show of hands. How many of you could use a good fresh word from the Lord today? Here it is. The Lord is with you. Good enough? That's good enough. That's all I need to hear some days. Come on, put your feet on the ground, heading to the coffee thinking that's all you need. Come on, community ain't that good, baby. <laughs> you think community's gonna pull you out of the ditch. It ain't gonna pull you. You need to hear on the way to the, to the coffee pot, I'm with you. I'm with you. Reason number one million and one to read your Bible is because when you read your Bible, all it says is that I'm with you. I love you. I'm for you and not against you. I have plans and purposes for you. I've got your future planned out. I know your name. I know how many hairs you got on your head. If you got some left, come on, somebody. I, I know everything there is to know about you. I know what makes you tick. I know what makes you mad. I'm with you. So he gives Gideon a reminder with a revelation. Even though Gideon didn't get it yet, you see, he still had some doubts. In fact, he asked for a sign. He let prove it. <laughs> to which God didn't strike him down. Right? Well, prove it. I, was, I shared my testimony at, at Pastor Bubba's memorial service about when God said, go find Bubba, ask him what he needs. What I didn't share was is that I made God say it again. <laughs> <laughs> 
about a week later, I was eating supper. Cheryl will tell you, I just emotionally got up. I was done. Everybody told me I was making a mistake. I got, got on my four-wheeler, went to the woods, cried my eyes. I said, Lord, I know I heard you, but can you say it again? And he said it again. Go find Bubba. Ask him what he needs and help him. And then I turned the four-wheeler on, and I went back home, and I said, pack the bags. So God's not afraid to tell you again. He'll tell you every day if you need it. He asked for a sign. He still had doubts. That's okay. God's not afraid of your doubts. He's not changed by your doubts. He knows how to work through your doubts. He knows how to kill your doubts. He knows how to overcome your doubts. He's bigger than your doubts. He tells, he tells Gideon to go and do something. And what you got to understand today is that when God shows himself to you and he tells you to go do something, you really need to go do it. If he tells you to go do something, that means that when you do it, he's got something for you when you do it. So if you don't go do it, you don't get what he got for you. Is that gangster enough? <laughs> so when he's obedient to God's command, then he starts to realize who God is, which then in turn shapes how he would understand who he is. You see, this whole thing is cyclical. It's in, a, it's in a cycle. When we get a revelation of who God is, it changes who I am. And when I change who I am, then I see God for who he is. And it goes around and around and around. But obedience is at the core of that. I need to step out into what he says me to t- tells me to step out into. It's hard to know who God is if you don't listen to him. cyclical one builds on the other the better revelation I have of God the better I see myself you know what happens when that happens you quit selling yourself short you quit, you, you quit giving yourself away to things that, that aren't even worthy of you you'll quit drinking you'll quit drugging you'll quit prostituting you'll quit pouring yourself out to everybody else you don't need to be pouring out to you'll quit selling yourself short When you get a revelation of who God is, it changes how who you are. And then you get a revelation of who God is. (sighs) Number three, the results. Mighty hero, the Lord's with you. (laughs) Really? Watch verse 25. That night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd and the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. God tells Gideon to go get rid of their gods. Now, why is this important? Because you see, they erected an altar to Baal because Baal was known as the all-purpose God. He was the God that you could go to for anything. They primarily went to him for fertility. But he was the God that could do anything. Think about how God feels when we serve another lowercase g God who's supposed to be able to do everything. I don't know if you forgot this or not, but we serve a jealous God. (laughs) He wants to be your all in all because he is your all in all. He tells him to go and tear him down. Gideon's still a little bit afraid, still don't know quite who God is and who he is. He does something, though. That's worth mentioning. He steps out 
and does what God says to do. Now, this is important because in that moment when Gideon stepped into obedience to God, he set himself apart for God. You can't set yourself apart if you're not willing to leave your comfortable place. You can't set yourself apart if you're not willing to come out of your cave or your wine press. If God says to go and do something, you step out into it, you're getting, you're getting set up right there. You're ready for an experience. You're ready for a moment. You're getting ready to see God like you never saw him before. So Gideon's still afraid. He goes at night and does it. <laughs> he won't get in trouble because it was in his daddy's yard. He was going to tear down his daddy's God. He goes out and he builds an altar to the Lord and then he tears down the altar to Baal and the Asherah poles. <laughs> but watch this. Now he's in trouble. Because <laughs> you see, when you act in obedience to God, you're going to cause some friction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's some consequences, some real consequences. And I think a lot of people don't want to obey God because they're more afraid of the consequences than of God. Oh, there's consequences. He tore down the tribe. This was the altar that the tribe would come and worship at. That would be like him walking out into the, into the city court, into the middle of Eunice and tearing down an altar that Eunice would have erected right there that night and then re, reestablishing an altar to the Lord and then sit around waiting for everybody to wake up. <laughs> and boy, did they wake up. They came out cussing, fussing, and hollering. But Gideon learned something in that moment that when he took a step of faith, it led others to take a step of faith. When he, when he acted in obedience, it caused a, a ripple effect in the people around him. You see, your obedience isn't just for you. It's for everybody else around you too. So he tore down the little G gods that existed. And he started a journey to teach the people that capital G God is the only God you need. He set himself apart, and that's how you start. So here's a question. What is it that you're serving that you're not supposed to be serving? What is it that you're worshiping that you're not supposed to be worshiping? What is it that you're selling yourself short to that you shouldn't be selling yourself to? Who's your little G God? Is it money? Is it security? Is it sanity? Is it preventive? Is it attractional? Are you trying to find acceptance? Who God is defines who I am, which in turn defines more of who God is and then more of who I am. You can't have one without the other. God then tells Gideon, Gideon, God tells Gideon to go to war to set the whole nation free. 
So Gideon grabs all of his troops, and when God's done with him, he's only got 300 left. You want to talk about the odds being stacked against you. Let me just give you a little, a little tip. There's not going to be a whole lot of people for you. When you step out in what God has for you and you start to discover who you are and you start to, it starts to change your life, you're not going to find a whole cheerleading squad next to you going, come on, you can do it, you can do it. You're not going to find that. In fact, you'll find an opposing team is what you'll find of naysayers who will try to rename you, bring up old names, and put some old claims on you. The odds are stacked against Gideon. In fact, the odds are this now. There's 120,000 warriors from Midian. There's 300 men with Gideon. You know what those odds are? 400 to 1. That means every one of Gideon's men has to kill 400 of the Midianites to have victory. It's impossible. What seems impossible to you? Is financial freedom impossible to you? Is peace impossible to you? Is joy impossible to you? Is satisfaction and contentment in the Lord alone impossible to you? How big are those odds? It didn't look good. (laughs) But you see, the Gideon we see on the battlefield is not the Gideon we found in the wine press. Something happened. God stepped into his life and introduced himself to Gideon and called him out of his wine press and put him on a battlefield. And that's what he's wanting to do with us today. He wants to call you out of a wine press that you're hiding in and put you on a battlefield to advance his kingdom on the planet. It's not nice, it's not kind, it's not funny, and it don't feel good. It's real, but one day we're going to get out of it. There's something different about Gideon now. You see, now Gideon sees God differently, which in turn causes him to see himself differently. His first act of obedience led to many other acts of obedience, which led to many more revelations of who God is. And God gives Gideon a great victory. Watch this. And the nation of Israel found peace for 40 years because one man changed his mind about God and God changed his mind about himself. My God in heaven, what could God do with a church called OSC in a city called Eunice? One Gideon changed the nation. What could a church change? Amen? So I want you to do something today. When you get home, at some point today, I want you to get by yourself. And I want you to go stand in front of a mirror. While you're standing in front of that mirror, I want you to listen to all the lies that are going to come at you. In fact, I'll tell you to bring a notebook with you. Start writing them down. Ugly. Dumb. Useless. Idiot. Worthless. Stupid. I can name a few, but I won't say them in church. Whatever they are, write them down done, I want you to put your hand on your heart, while you 
looking in the mirror. I want you to, with your eyes open, I want you to pray this. I want you to say this. I want you to say, all those things on that list, you no longer live here. You've been evicted in the name of Jesus. That is not who I am. I kick you out now in Jesus' name. I want you to take that piece of paper and I want you to go outside and burn it. I want you to watch it disappear. I want you to expect God to name you and I want you to listen. I want you to listen. I promise you this, if you'll take that moment and make it very personal with you and the Lord, he will speak to you. He will talk to you. He will whisper to you. He may even shout to you who you are. And you'll walk away from that not trying to please people. You walk away from there changed. Not all at once, but it's a start. words of my pastor you are not a barnacle on the bottom of a shrimp boat you're created in the image of the mighty God of the living God he created you in his image and your royalty I've given you a piece of paper today it just says who you are it's in the Bible I would encourage you to read that recite that whatever you need to do with that unchangeable and we're changeable let's pray Father we thank you for today we thank you for this great love that you display to us that you pour out on us God your word says it's the goodness of God that draws men to repentance the example that Jesus used when he was talking about the prodigal son who went off and made the biggest mistakes you can make came back with his tail tucked between his legs thinking maybe I'll just be a servant in my daddy's house and the Lord met him at the end of the road and reestablished him Thank you.